Well, good morning to you. It is, uh, it is good to be together. I've been traveling a little bit, and uh, it's the first Sunday back, and able to uh, uh, soak it all in and uh, worship together and rejoice as we come to the beginning of the Advent. It's actually uh, a little jarring to go uh, in three short days from Thanksgiving to uh, Advent Sunday. And yet, uh, here we are, and uh, the beginning of a joyous season for us as we exalt Christ, as we celebrate His coming, as we bear witness to the hope of Christ that is ours because of His coming, that is for all who call upon His name. Uh, this season is, uh, is cherished in our home. We love it. It has given birth to some good traditions, uh, one of which, uh, in a daily way, is, is just reading through the, uh, the, the coming of Christ, the, the story of his birth. And we have a book that helps us in that. You open a set of doors and gives you a little scripture on uh, the Gospel of Luke. And it's, a, it's, a, just a, it's, a, it's a, a cherished time for us as a family. It's become so much a part of our tradition that uh, the girls have been able to memorize that story, I think, just by rote, rote uh, reading, and, uh, and it, it has just woven its way into the fabric of our traditions. That's a, that's a grand thing, and maybe that's your same tradition. Maybe you turn to, to Luke's story, his account of Jesus' birth, or maybe it's one of the other Gospels. I, I hope that's a part, of, uh, a part of the Advent season for you. I suspect wherever you turn, it's probably not Titus 2. Uh, this might be an unusual place to begin uh, the telling of, of the Advent and the coming of Christ, but it is a very fitting place for us to spend our time uh, thinking about uh, what God accomplished in that very act of sending forth His Son into a darkened world. And, and so we're going to spend our time there this morning, and, and Paul in summary fashion, classic Paul in, in short fashion takes us almost as if we were on a bullet train from Bethlehem to Calvary to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns and sets all things right. So it's a rapid uh, journey, if you will. And in, for Paul, it's actually in one sentence in the original language. So we're going to spend our time thinking through that as I pray and as we read uh, Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. Please pray with me. Father, we do ask uh, for your spirit to, to give us eyes to see and to hear from you, to, give, to illumine our minds and, and to just give us clarity and understanding of what you accomplished and what you will accomplish as we look to you, as we celebrate the coming of Christ, as we exalt our Savior for all the world to see, would you help us to do that by the power of your Spirit and for the glory of your name? Amen. Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is God's word. uh, Throughout the course of this week in preparation for for our time together that I came across a a survey by uh, Pew Trusts and and it was on the topic of Christmas, and particularly uh, Christmas in our, in, our, in our nation, in our land, and how uh, 90% of Americans celebrate Christmas in some form or another. Uh, it, might be, uh, it might be gift-giving, it might be uh, cards or decorations, trees, family, friends, uh, that there is an intentional a celebration of this holiday more so than any other across the land. Uh, that was uh, encouraging at one level, and then as I read a little further in this, in this article, in this survey, I learned that uh, the most popular thing people look forward to in Christmas is spending time with family and friends. I think that's, that's uh, understandable in some ways. Uh, but when asked, uh, second, what comes after that um, very few people, actually just about one in ten, said uh, reflecting on Christmas and attending a church service. That that somehow is not a part of the cultural understanding of this holiday. And I don't think we're surprised by that. Uh, we, th- we tend to understand that there's this gravitational pull to make Christmas a cultural holiday like any other perhaps, and, and to remove from it the, the, the significance and the substance of what it, what it represents and what it means. And so it, it, if you come maybe with, uh, with that impulse, that would not be uh, uncommon in our day. Uh, maybe you come asking with the very real question, what really is so special about Christmas anyway? That seems to be the question our, our culture is asking as they look to almost everything except what Christmas represents. So it's with Chris, crystal clarity that Paul helps us answer that very question as he, as he points us to the appearing of God in all of humanity in, in, in a particular point in time and what it meant and what it represented and what it accomplished. See, Paul is showing us the, the significance of Christmas and the incarnation, the very appearing of God. And, and it's in the incarnation where we learn that the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation, transformation, and even anticipation of what is to come. In fact, Paul gives us wonderfully these two appearings as as bookmarks if you will bookends of this of this grand and glorious event he talks about the appearing of grace verses 11 and 12 the grace of god appearing and then he tells us about the appearing of 
glory in verses 13 and 14, how we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are are two points that that shape and frame the the passage before us this morning. So I want to take take a little time and try to unpack this idea that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. What what is the significance of that? How does that give shape to our understanding of Christmas? That the grace of God has appeared. It's the very incarnation But Paul doesn't stop there. He moves from the incarnation to redemption to Christ's return. So this starting point, the first appearing, the appearing of grace. That is the the time when, when the sovereign God of the universe, light of light, very God of very God, came into the world in the form of a child as a baby in a manger in an obscure little town in Bethlehem. The greatest fulfillment and expression of the grace of God ever known in the history of the universe. Maybe when you think of Christmas, that's not the first thing that comes to mind. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not the grace of God given particular expression and clarity and definition in what God has done in sending forth his Son. But Paul helps us see that, that it should be. It should be our starting point to rightly understand Christmas and to see it with clarity, what God has done and the stunning reality of what he accomplished in sending forth his kindness and his favor unto sinful, undeserving people. That's where Paul begins. And, and he uses this this. this Pretty striking word that God appeared. The word is epiphanal. We get epiphany from it. It means, we we often talk about Christmas epiphanies. Appearings. It means to give light, illumination, to to shine out in greater brightness than before. And that, that little word helps us understand the context in which the grace of God appeared. That actually, at that time, when Christ was born, the world was a darkened place. And kind of light existed in the shadows and obscurity, if you will. But in the coming of Christ, in the birth of a child in a manger in Bethlehem, that, that, that obscurity is chased away. And the brilliance and the brightness of the light of lights, the God of gods, is shown forth. We see witness to this by the angels and the shepherds and the like. As we account, give an account of the Christmas story. That one little word. It's actually only used one other place as a verb in, in Luke's gospel. In in the account of the first Christmas. It's, it's actually the word that Zechariah uses when he's given words to speak again, and, and he sings forth the glories of Christ coming and, and how John, this, his son, will 
bear witness to the salvation that is found in Christ and the forgiveness of sins. And then Zechariah says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That word, to give light, epiphany, to appear. To give light to those who sit in darkness. That's the reality of life apart from Christ. It is a a life of darkness. A life of, of emptiness. And so Christmas begins to show us the coming of the Christ child points us to to light and meaning and fulfillment according to God's perfect redemptive plan and purposes. And that light, we're told, dispels darkness and it brings direction and comfort and peace. I, I want you to think of the day when Christ was born and what that what that meant in that day and age. What was going on in that particular context and time in which Christ was born. It it is a world not dissimilar to ours in many ways. One writer draws that out in this description. He says, the people of that time were being heavily taxed and faced every prospect of a sharp increase to cover expanding military expenses. The threat of world domination by a cruel, ungodly, power-intoxicated band of men was ever just below the threshold of consciousness. Moral deterioration had corrupted the upper levels of society and was moving rapidly into the broad base of the populace. Intense nationalistic feeling was clashing openly with new and sinister forms of imperialism. Conformity was the spirit of the age. Government handouts were being used with increasing lavishness to keep the population from rising up and throwing out the leaders. Interest rates were spiraling upward in the midst of an inflated economy. External religious observances were considered a political asset and abnormal emphasis was being placed on sports and athletic competition. Racial tensions were at the breaking point. And in such a time, and amid such a people, a child was born to a migrant couple who had just signed up for a fresh round of taxation and were soon to become political exiles. And the child who was born was called, among other things, Emmanuel. God with us. That time, not all that dissimilar from our time. That was the the socio-political and economic realities of the day into which Christ broke forth into this world. And even more so, the spiritual condition of the day where, where sin and iniquity had permeated the recesses of the land. Anger, envy, pride, sloth, malice, covetousness, idolatry, and the like. That was 
That was the spiritual climate of the day. And, and yet, in the midst of that, this bright and brilliant and beautiful light has sprung up to those in darkness. Like the sun shining forth on a, on a long, cold, dark winter day. That's the beauty of the incarnation. The first appearing, the grace of God appearing to mankind. Undeserving mankind. God showing his favor and his kindness and his love in providing a way for sinful human beings to have a relationship with a holy, perfect, righteous God. That's the stunning reality of the first appearing. Isaiah spoke of that this way. He said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. It's the very, the very words of the Advent that we've said this morning. The beauty of what God has done in showing forth his grace. And, and the effect of that is that, that it changes everything. It, it brings salvation, Paul says. Bringing salvation to all people. That is to all kinds and conditions and classes of people without distinction. In just the previous verse, Paul's talking to slaves. And, and so it is, a, it is a grace that appears to slaves and to masters. It is a grace that appears to Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans without, without distinction, without partiality. It is, it is a grace that appears to the poor and the wealthy, the women and children, the proud and the oppressed, to the sick and the suffering, the clean and the unclean, and to publicans and sinners and tax collectors of all kinds and conditions of people. That's the stunning grace of God, the first appearing. Friends, our, our, our day is is not dissimilar in terms of moral deterioration and decay, conformity to the spirit of the age, racial tension, tumult and trials, and, and, and evil of all kinds, it seems, at every turn. And yet God bursts forth like a blazing fire like lightning amidst a blackened sky. That's the glory and the beauty of the first appearing of the grace of God. And, and what it means is it invites every human being to repentance. It, it invites every living person to turn to Christ and to trust in Him by His very kindness and grace shown to you in His Son. It means that there's a way to understand Christmas that is radically different from what our culture tells us. Because the wall of separation between God and man has been broken down. The veil's been torn into the mystery revealed. The light has shone upon darkness. And if that's the case, and maybe you come today at the invitation of another, maybe... 
It is uh, the kindness of a friend or a neighbor or a family member who's just, why don't you come join us as we think about Christmas these next few weeks? Maybe that's why you're here and, and, and you're hearing this anew, maybe. Or, or it, it harkens back to something uh, that you've known but haven't really thought much about. That, that understanding the appearing of the grace of God has a very personal application. It means you must take a personal interest in that and not just have it out there as kind of some Christmas nicety. But in a very personal way, trusting in that God who provides for sinful human beings in their darkness by providing the light of his Son to bring salvation. For in him and in him alone, that rescue is found, that deliverance. But Paul doesn't stop there. It's not just the bringing of salvation that is accomplished in that first appearing, but, but with it also is a, is a transformation, a change that happens for all who look to Christ and the grace of God. That's, that's where he takes us in, in verse, verse 14. He actually is beginning to show us how that salvation is accomplished. It's accomplished through Christ's redemption. He moves from the incarnation to redemption and says that Jesus is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good works. See, in Paul's train of thought, the incarnation and redemption hang together. Whenever you look to the manger, there's the the shadow of the cross in the distance. Or if you look to the cross, there's the manger not far off. That's the reality of of how Christ actually brought salvation. It is that he gave himself. He suffered and he died for sins. He sacrificed himself like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a Passover lamb as a perfect substitution for the sins of his people. Not only did he give himself, he he did so to redeem us, to buy us back, to to buy us back from sin and the bondage of sin. And the price he paid was his very blood shed for you. That's the redemption he accomplished to free us from the bondage and, and the slavery of sin. Like the Exodus long before freed God's people from, from slavery and set them upon his path and course for life. He gave himself to redeem us, to purify us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and to make a people his own treasured possession. That, that God from the beginning of, of the history of the world was setting about that task to set aside a people for himself that he would redeem through Christ. And that he would, he would, they would be his treasured possession. It's the very thing that, that Exodus 19 talks about. Describing God's people as, as a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
living for him according to his good purposes, zealous for good works, seeking to live in a manner that brings him glory and, and bears witness to his grace to a darkened world. That's, that's the first appearing. It brings salvation, and then it also trains us. It teaches us. It educates us. That's, that's how Paul describes it. He says, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So, so Paul has these two appearings, the appearing of the grace of God, the appearing of the glory of God to come, and then how do we live life in between that time, between those two appearings in the present age? It's allowing grace to change and to transform and to change us in, in two very particular ways, by denying and renouncing ungodliness and sin and worldly passions, the things that captivate the heart before Christ, but then also not only, not only teaching us to say no to those things, but teaching us to say yes to Christ, teaching us to live upright and godly lives. That's the beauty of how grace actually not only starts the walk of faith in Christ, but, but maintains it and changes the, the Christian as they live for the glory of Christ, as they follow Christ. That's the power of grace to transform lives. Now, we could spend a fair amount of time on that truth and that reality and how it gets worked out in the life of the church and the life of each individual Christian. And we will. In the, in the weeks ahead, we'll have opportunities to do that. Uh, but I want you to see simply here that grace not only brings salvation, but it teaches us how to live and how to live in a way that honors Christ that's the first appearing. And the other side is as grace saves, as grace trains us, grace also, also causes us to hope, to anticipate, to wait for what is to come. And that's the second appearing, verses 13 and 14. The very appearing of the glory of God that will come again when, when our great God and Savior Jesus Christ returns. That's the appearing of glory that is stunning in how Paul sets it forth. It is, it is the hope of the Christian that Christ will return. He will come again and he will come in all power and dominion and glory. See, grace trains us and saves us, but it also gives us every reason to wait expectantly, to wait hopefully, waiting for our blessed hope. That is Christ himself, the glory of our great God and Savior. He appeared in grace. He will appear again in glory. Darkness has this ability to steal away hope. Do you know what I mean? That in a fallen world, in in, in the, the trials and, and 
the tribulations of this world, hope can, can be quelled. That's, that's why Paul takes us from the incarnation to his return in, in stunning, short fashion. Because when I, when I have my eyes set upon what is to come, I then live differently in the here and now. That's Paul's point. In this present age, I live in a radically different manner because of, because of what he has done when he appeared and because of his appearing that will come again. And so we wait for that day when, when, when all of creation comes to its consummation in the coming of Christ and the return of Christ. See, the one who's been, who's been saved by grace and trained by grace is no longer turned and tossed about by every passion of this world. And maybe where that's a temptation, there needs to be a, a, a coming back to the reality of what God has done in Christ for you. Maybe where sin has grabbed a hold and hasn't let go. That there is, there is an understanding of God's kindness and favor that has been shown to you that is somehow not penetrating that one matter or area of life. But also that what is to come when Christ returns would have everything to say to you in the here and now as well as you live for Christ and as you live for, for his redemptive purposes, bearing witness to the glory of Christ and the hope of Christ and the grace of Christ. So glory, it's kind of hard to get our minds around that. It, it is in some ways the sum of all that God is, every attribute that we use to describe who he is is summed up in his glory it is intrinsic to his nature just as light is intrinsic to the sun or 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 blue is intrinsic to the sky in most places other than chicago glory is 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 essential to who god is to his to his very nature and so it's even more stunning that the Lord of glory would enter into this fallen, dark, and broken world as a baby and live a perfect life and then bow his head in weakness on the cross only to be raised again and then one day return in all glory. And when that day comes, there will be a stunning acknowledgement of who God is and what he has accomplished across the breadth of humanity for all to see. From the the dawn of creation, God has been revealing his glory. But because of the fall, because of the darkness of this world, we've only seen a hint of it. Even in the beauty of his creation, even in the coming of Christ, we just get a glimpse of his glory. Kind of like a glimmering of dawn before the rising of the sun. 
But there is a day. There's a day that waits when Jesus, the son of righteousness, will return ablaze with divine radiance and supernatural glory of which the mind can barely conceive and the eye will not fully behold apart from the work of the Spirit. That day awaits, that appearing, that return of Christ for all who call upon him and trust on him when he brings salvation and transformation and anticipation to its, to its culmination in Christ and his return. That's a glorious day. And, and that, is, that is what awaits. And it's, it's held in contrast to his first appearing, that second appearing. When we, when we think about what it is that the Lord Jesus Christ came as a baby in a manger. That he's not a character in a children's story. He's far, far more than that. He gives all meaning and significance to the Advent and to Christmas. When we consider the first appearing and the second, when we consider the contrast that in the first He came as a baby, veiled in the form of a child. But when he returns, he will come unveiled, glorious and splendor for all the world to see. See, the first time a star marked his arrival, the next time the whole heavens will roll up like a scroll And all the stars will fall out of the sky. The first time he came, wise men and shepherds brought him gifts. The next time he comes, he will give gifts to those who call upon his name. The first time, there was no room for him. The next time he comes, the whole world will not be able to contain his glory. The first time he came, only a few attended his arrival. Shepherds and some wise men. The next time he comes, every eye shall see and every knee shall bow and acknowledge his name above all the earth. The first time he came as a baby. The next time he comes will be as the sovereign Lord and King of glory over all of creation, crowning his creation forevermore. That's the stunning contrast of the first appearing and the second appearing. And it is why Christmas is indeed special and significant. And it is why we celebrate the Advent and rejoice throughout the season bearing witness to the hope of Christ for all peoples. Please pray with me. Father, we do praise you and thank you for your word and the telling of this story anew in the sense of what you have accomplished and who you are and your saving and redeeming purposes for mankind. We ask, Father, that you would uh, 
renew our minds and stir up our hearts to behold Christ and to marvel at what we see, the very grace of God in human form made manifest for the purpose of redeeming a people unto yourself, your treasured possession for your glory. And as we live in between these two appearings, Father, may we do so ever aware of what you have done and what you will one day accomplish completely. And may we do so bearing witness to the hope of Christ and his great grace and love for his glory. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.